you are listening to Win Win, a podcast brought to you by the global nonprofit Win, Women in Innovation. Each episode features inspiring innovators from the startup world, innovation consultancies, and Fortune 500 companies who share their innovation secrets and career trajectories every Monday. As for me, I'm your host, Zoya Kozakov, global marketing lead at Win by night and product manager and university level faculty by day. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the Win Win Podcast. I cannot believe I get to say this for the second time, but we are now at our finale of season two. And what a season it has been. We've hit over 10,000 downloads and counting and collaborated with some incredible companies along the way, spoken to women from Fortune 500 companies in the C-suite. We've spoken to entrepreneurs, venture capitalists, and so many others. Win Women in Innovation our incredible nonprofit that is behind this podcast celebrated five years of existence with our Race to Rise campaign, which was all about inspiring others to think about the ways we can collectively rise as a tide and support the women innovators in our lives a little extra. To be honest, when I started this podcast last August, a lot of people asked me about my goals. And of course, I was so excited to expand Win's reach to so many people who have yet to hear of us and all the meaningful work we are doing to close the gender gap in innovation. But to be honest, like much of innovation itself, this was also about experimenting and allowing the product itself to lead me and the team behind this podcast in seeing what this community needs more of and how we could anticipate those needs. The world feels like it's continuously shifting and changing, and I can say that so many people have said to me that they found themselves feeling like these conversations on this podcast are like coffee chats that they are part of, and that's really become the goal. I'm so excited to continue uplifting and getting out the stories of these women every single week and to keep on making everybody who has listened to one episode or 41 episodes feel like you're a part of the conversation because you are. Before I share more about our incredible guest today, one of my personal role models, Vanessa Colella, I wanted to thank everybody for their support behind this project. And anybody who's ever written or LinkedIn messaged me their feedback, please know that this is always an open door and we can't wait to bring more women on here to talk about how they're changing the world we all live in. Today's guest, Vanessa, is the Chief Innovation Officer at Citi or Citibank as some of you may know it. Transparently speaking, today I got to play double agent, as City is also my employer as of last fall. It was really special to get to do this, and there are a ton of insights that I think will be beneficial for everybody. Oftentimes we think about how strategy, innovation, and operations are all completely siloed roles, but innovation actually happens when the execution and operations is strongly in place. Vanessa has exemplified that in her career of over 25 years. In that time, she's also received her master's degrees from Columbia University and MIT, as well as her PhD from MIT, too. We talk about this a lot today, but her start was as a science teacher in the first five years of her career. She navigated her path from this to become a partner at McKinsey. She's also led insights at Yahoo, has been an entrepreneur herself, and at City, she has led many careers, some of which include marketing, others include strategic growth initiatives, venture, and now, as innovation officer, she heads up City Ventures and City Productivity. Some of Vanessa's other accomplishments include being the mastermind and the doer behind City Bike and receiving awards such as Big Innovation, Silver Stevie Award, Global Corporate Venturing Power List, and many, many more. 
While City is an enormously large organization, Vanessa's role is continuously about the micro and macro. She oversees the incubation teams internally, as well as venture investing, while challenging different city teams to think bigger, test ideas, and challenge industry and company norms. I've had the privilege of going to her internal innovation panel chats, which she conducts with our CMO, Carla Hassan, and the big takeaway has always been that innovation is everyone's job, regardless of your title or seniority. The last year has turned mine and many others' definition of what innovation is in the first place on its head. Pretty much every industry we've known has been disrupted, yet some continue to be exceptionally ripe for innovation, and financial services is absolutely at the top of that list. I hope you enjoy hearing from Vanessa Kalala today and walk away feeling as inspired as I did. Hi, Vanessa. Welcome to the Win Win Podcast. Thanks so much. I'm really privileged to be here. Same for me. And this episode of the Win Win Podcast feels so special because personally, after years of marketing and strategy experience, I got my innovation and product management start about six months ago at City, where you are chief innovation officer. But one of the many things that I personally love and admire about your career is that it didn't start in innovation, but actually began in teaching science in high school. So what role do you think that sort of initial career start plays in your innovation career trajectory? Yeah, so it was a long time ago, but I was part of the Charter Corps of Teach for America. So I got started teaching high school in East Los Angeles and then junior high in Fort Greene, Brooklyn. And, you know, it probably took me a couple of decades to realize that what attracted me to Teach for America was actually related to innovation. What I was interested in was you know, looking at the intersection of, of societal change and, and where we really needed to do things better on a large scale. And, um, and so part of that was, you know, what could we bring to education that would be different? And, and I didn't realize that at the time, but I've had a bunch of career moves in the middle. Um, and when I look backwards, a lot of it is about you know, using the perspective that you have, the experience that you have to drive transformation and change, which was really part of what I was trying to do at a very early age. Right. And retrospective vision is always twenty twenty. But do you think you were aware of that in the moment as it was happening? I'm somewhat. I mean, Teach for America's thesis was, you know, there's so many underserved communities in this country, um, particularly around education. I'm a product of public school education. And, you know, there's so many kids in public schools around the country who just don't have opportunity, don't have enough teachers, don't have teachers who have background in science or math, etc. And so the whole thesis of, of the nonprofit was, how do we drive change? Right? How do we take what is just appalling conditions in so many public schools in in the United States, right? It doesn't need to be that way. So, but what was interesting was, you know, I've had different jobs, as I mentioned, over my career, some of which have been focused on making change in a very micro way, which is kind of what teaching is, where the change that you're making is really with your students in your classroom. And some of which, like being chief innovation officer at City, are more focused on how do you make change at a much more macro level. And I think for me, having both of those experiences, kind of being on the ground, as well as being able to impact things at a much larger scale, 
uh, has been part of what's been a meaningful part of, of my own career journey. I think in the last year, we saw that actually education was perhaps the most disrupted industry. I know there are a few competitors there, but obviously you've not been in the space for many, many years. But as that was happening, did you have any sparks of innovation ideas or thoughts that came with the changing landscape of education? Yeah, I mean, I guess I was 30 years out of step with innovation and education. Uh, but yeah, we've done a lot of things. Actually, I've had a lot of thoughts, you know, over the past year about education. Um, and, and even before that, I mean, a couple of years ago, one of the things that we started at City was a program called Cupid, which is our city university partnerships in innovation and discovery. We partner with over 70 universities around the world and here in the U.S. with I think now 26 or 27 of the HBCUs. And the whole point of Cupid was to bring people into an experience and innovation where they could see whether or not their own curiosity and passion and energy could be applied. Because, you know, I'm, I guess coming from teaching, it's, it's so apparent to me, you know, we don't live in an agrarian society where people's jobs are very obvious, right? That person's a farmer, that person's a merchant, right? There was a point in time in, in human history when you could see what everybody did. And in today's world, you can't really see what most people do. I mean, I have a young son and he thinks that what I do is talk on Zoom and write email, which is <laughs> in this moment pretty much an accurate description, but doesn't give you a sense of why a career or a particular job could be interesting. And so one thing that we did with Cupid this past year, in addition to all the work that we do with the HBCUs, was expand our internship program so that as the you know, pandemic was hitting, we were helping students to you know, maintain their ability of connecting to the corporate world and, and starting to understand whether or not that'd be a place that they would thrive and flourish. And, and I think it's always interesting if you've had the opportunity to do different things to try and pull some of those threads through um, and figure out how some past experience that maybe someone next to you hasn't had could help bring a diverse perspective into solving some of the big challenges that we have around the world. Totally. And it's one of the reasons that I started this podcast, because I do think that most people who come on say, you know, I, I haven't had the traditional innovation background. And, and so my, my path was different. But I think that's kind of the, the really fascinating thing about innovation is that it can be in any place and it can happen at any place. But as you've taken on these projects within City and through your own career trajectory, do you think there is training or coursework that is helpful when pursuing an innovation career? a really good question. <laughs> we, we talk a lot about there their four character traits that I think you have to nurture if you want to drive change. The first is curiosity. If you, if you can maintain your sense of wonder and curiosity and indignation about why the world does not have to be the, exactly the way it is today, um, and why couldn't it be different? I think that's really important. The second is empathy. And by that, I don't just mean, you know, your best friend has a breakup and you, you know, go out for, for a beer and talk about it. I mean, when I say, you know, my life, <laughs> truly, truly understanding where are other people coming from? Because that's the only way that you can actually drive change and make things better. The third we talked about a little bit before is a real penchant for diversity, right? Diverse opinions, diverse perspectives, the, the best 
groups of people, whether in a big corporation or a startup, are people who come at problems from different angles, and that's what allows them to solve things. And the final is bravery. It takes a lot to drive change, right? You, you got to be tenacious. You got to be brave. And I think there are many, many different ways in life that you can get training in those four things. I was talking to a young woman who I mentored yesterday about how she came from a, a place in the bank where it was all about perfection. And, and I said, you know, there's a great HBR article on female entrepreneurs and how female entrepreneurs tend to get asked questions about risks to their business, right? What would happen if this didn't work? How, male entrepreneurs tend to get asked questions about how big the opportunity is. Um, and by the way, this is true whether the venture capitalists are women or men. Uh, but what the HBR folks, people who studied this, wrote about was really encouraging, which said a lot of the bias can actually be reversed if you just answer the question that you should have been asked. So instead of answering what the big risk is, if you say, it's really interesting, you're asking me about risks, here's the opportunity that I see. <laughs> um, it actually works really well. And so I was, I was talking to her about this fact of, of perfection and how when people are looking for ways to blame or like this didn't work, that didn't work, instead of apologizing or saying like, oh, I'll do better next time, say, you know, well, these are the three things I think we learned from what happened. And I think that that kind of reframing is as important in innovation as any sort of you know, coursework that one might take. Uh, because to, in today's world, innovation isn't separate. It's not done in one group or in one place. It permeates you know, the whole organization. It's really just about how you show up for work and how you think about what you want to contribute. So I think it's, it's a lot more mindset than it is coursework at this point. Totally. And it's funny because you host these amazing internal innovation chats. I loved when Nick Tran, uh, the head of global marketing at TikTok, popped in and he shared his insights. And something that he spoke about was creating multiple innovation projects to reduce the feelings of failure. And you said that for City, it's like a portfolio of bets for innovation. So I think a similar approach, and especially with you now saying that it's like this bravery, this mindset of, of, you know, let's take a little bit of a gamble. So I'd love to dive deeper. What do you think TikTok and City have in common when it comes to innovation? Well, not just TikTok and City, but any company, any government, we all live in a world that is changing rapidly. And, and you know, one thing I think that became so apparent out of the tragedy of 2020 was that it's not just about technology innovation. It's not just technology driving things. It's how did people's behavior you know, impact innovation? How, how does shifts in society and regulation impact innovation? And I think we all now have seen that firsthand. Um, and so I think any company is, is really trying to understand you know, where is the world going? How do you create value? How, in TikTok's case, right, how do you create connectivity? How do you bring people together? And what I loved about what some of what Nick shared with us was just how they've been able to create this platform that the community, the, the, the contributors have taken to places that, that the company itself never imagined. And that I think is something that that really flows through many industries in today's world, which is 
you know, being able as a corporation to adapt to where your clients or where your customers see things that that your corporation is offering that you might not have even recognized. And, and I thought uh, I thought that was really interesting. There's there's so much in this in this time to learn across industries. Uh, and, and it was great that he crashed that meeting because I think we all learned something from him. So are there any specific industries or companies that you look to in addition to obviously the financial services space to learn more and, and really adopt when it comes to bringing things into city? Yeah. So I try and look very broadly. So there are probably few industries that I'm not interested in um, you know, it, because I think part of what I try and bring to the, the team and to the company, to our clients is a really broad scan of, of signals and then trying to pull those together into patterns, into themes, because there's so much noise in the world right now. Um, but at the same time, so many industries are kind of colliding together that I believe that the, the broader set of signals you can take in, the more effective you can be as an innovator. And what I mean by that is signals from everywhere. Like if, if your mother is talking about something that you also heard about from a friend and you also heard about from your boss, there's a really good chance that whatever that thing is going to be important really quickly, right? Whereas if just one person mentioned something, you know, it may not be worth paying so much attention to yet. And so we use that a lot um, at City, where we're constantly talking with our clients, we're talking with academic centers, governments, uh, nonprofits, trying to understand how they see issues, and then putting all that together, like making a stew, <laughs> and then figuring out, you know, what is it that we want to pay most attention to. Interesting that you bring that up because I think one of the hardest things for me in my career, and of course, I'm in a much, much earlier place in my career than you are, has actually been narrowing in and prioritizing. I was reading a book and in it, it said that Steve Jobs said that true innovation is saying no. I probably butchered that quote, but it was something along those lines. So for you, once you, once you gather all the broad signals, how do you prioritize and hone in on something? So my team would tell you that I'm terrible at prioritizing because <laughs> I get excited about lots of different things. Uh, but the one thing I do is as I'm sort of linking all those signals together, we come up with themes every year. Uh, and sometimes those themes last over multiple years and sometimes they last for six months and then they sort of morph into something else. Those themes serve as an organizing principle. So essentially they serve as a prioritization filter where we've said, this is stuff we're seeing, not only in the venture capital world where, where we're investing in startups, but in incubation work with our clients or in work in sort of how ESG is changing you know, the role of companies. We pull those themes together. And these are things like, like citizenship, right? It, you know, prior to maybe two years ago, all of us, existed in our life was essentially kind of compartmentalized, right? You were a consumer here and you were a, you know, mom here or a student mm -hmm. here or a, you know, a daughter here. Right. And you really, a lot of that got collapsed in an accelerated fashion last year where everybody's lives are now like 
all those facets, you know, come together in one. Totally. And so we're starting to think about our, our customers much more as citizens of the world, right? All those different aspects, like how do they interact with their communities? How do they interact with one another? Not just how are they interacting with us at the bank? And so that kind of a, a theme then helps me because then as I'm reading or listening to other things, when they attach or are adjacent to that theme, I pay more attention to them just naturally, right? So, you know, whether, whether a bunch of stuff we could talk about, embedded trade, artificial enlightenment, you know, we have the number of different themes. And then if you, if you are conscious about laying out those themes or even just writing them on a post-it and putting them on your computer screen, then your brain will naturally pay more attention to things that are related and it helps you flush those out and also, I think, prioritize where you want to spend your energy. Yeah, and I think the the kind of challenge of your job, I can imagine, is is being able to move so quickly in such an agile environment. You know, as I mentioned, City is, of course, a 200,000-person company. So how do you bring that agile, small company, startup mindset into the organization? Certainly for the next several decades and probably for the next century, at least, agility and, you know, that kind of questioning mindset is going to be the single most important leadership characteristic. So we say at City all the time, leaders are not people who have the answers. Leaders are people who have the right questions. And that's a real shift, right? If you looked in the rearview mirror 30 or 40 years, leaders were the people who were expected to just know what the answers were. So I think we're at this slow tipping point where the future is all about being able to ask the right questions. And so I think regardless of the size of the organization or the different kinds of problems and challenges and opportunities you're facing, you got to start at the moment of this is about working with colleagues to ask the right questions. And that you can do at any size or scale. Um, it's, it's really just about a change in sort of mental orientation. People always use the comparison of, you know, the rowboat and the giant tanker. <laughs> but, but corporations are not exactly like giant tankers, right? They're just places made up of either a few individuals or a few hundred thousand individuals. But mm-hmm. people can all independently think differently and come at problems differently in a way that is much easier than sort of turning the tanker. I have to be honest, I'm always the person in the room that probably asks like 10 questions too many. So I, I honestly, it, it's inherent to me for the better or for the worse. But generally speaking, we tend to ask questions when we are at the place of crisis or wartime. How do you believe that we can really change the employee experience or innovate within our companies to make sure that we're asking questions before the crisis hits? That's a, that's a really good question. Um, you know, I think what's important is, is trust, sort of humanity and trust. And the reason I say that is, you know, it's very easy, particularly if things are going okay, if someone asks a question or you know, raises a different point, for, for people to kind of bulldoze over that a little bit, like everything's fine, Zoya, why are you asking this question? <laughs> don't, don't like interrupt where we're going. And and we used to talk about this as generosity of interpretation. Assume when someone asks something or puts a point of view out there for reaction, 
that there's something in that that's worthwhile. Um, even if things are going well, it doesn't mean things couldn't be going better. And by the way, our world changes so quickly that things that work today may not work tomorrow. So mm-hmm. you have to have that, that generosity. And I think you also have to, you know, in innovation, we talk so much about ideas and uh, we can get later to why execution is actually harder, but people talk about good ideas and bad ideas. And actually, you know, ideas do not come sorted in two different buckets. Ideas don't even come just mixed up good ones and bad ones. They almost always come part of the idea is good, part of the idea is bad, right? And you have to really work together to unpack what's in there and where where it is that there's real nugget that is going to be helpful to whatever problem or challenge or opportunity you see in front of you. And so it really does boil down, I think, to trust and actively listening and trying to help in whatever team or group of people you're in, get to that nugget that's good and valuable so that you can move forward. As you know, my background is from the Israeli military. And in the intelligence, we always said, we're going to make this plan, but we all have to collectively buy in that when we get to the battle site, it's going to go a completely different direction. And it's almost like that combination of strategic planning, but also making the space. Um, So something else that I was curious about was really enabling that city productivity and city employee experience, which is the innovation that you are have been working on more recently. Yeah, so I took on city productivity a little bit over a year ago, and I think a lot of people were surprised. Like, your chief innovation officer, why are you taking productivity? Aren't those <laughs> two opposite, total opposite ends of the spectrum? But I did it because many times innovation at companies is aimed outward meaning it's aimed you know, at your clients or at your customers. And, and I thought, wouldn't it be great if we also aimed that innovation inward, right? Through our venture capital investing, we meet startups through, you know, how do we do more to bring startups in that make the employee experience more effective and, and more enjoyable? Through D10X, which is our internal incubator, we allow employees to bring forward ideas about better serving our clients well, employees also have a ton of great ideas about how to just work better and more smartly inside the bank. So how do we make that happen? You know, through Studio, we, we think about what if you step back and just reinvented our industry? Well, there's a lot of reinvention that can come internally as well. And so, so what we've been working on is as we build out productivity is really thinking about putting the employee first and taking all of these innovation capabilities that we've spent many, many years developing and unleashing them internal to the company. The reason I brought city productivity up, or one of many reasons, is I actually think it really ties in what you were saying about innovation always seems like this big idea, you know, take us to the moon kind of thinking. But at the end of the day, you really have to execute. And I think starting from within is a really strategic way of actually being able to then execute on the outside too. So what have been some points of tensions that you've come across in your career when it comes to implementation of innovation I mean, I think the biggest point of tension in innovation is that people think that innovation is really sexy. Therefore, nobody wants somebody else to sort of bring an idea, right? Everyone wants to do the whole thing themselves. Mm -hmm. And the reality is that innovation is no more or less sexy than all sorts of other things in a company or in a government or 
Um, it has its things that are that are really interesting and get your brain going, and then it has its other things that are sort of monotonous and process driven that you have to do to make sure that it's controlled, et cetera. And and so I think the biggest source of tension is is when innovation is set up as other at a company. And one thing that we've worked really hard to do at City is to integrate or embed innovation. In almost every talk I give, I say, you know, yeah, I'm chief innovation officer, but it doesn't mean that innovation starts or stops with me or my team. It's about how everyone shows up to work every day and the tools and capabilities that we give people so that their ideas can see the light of day. And, and then we can figure out what we want to pursue, what we don't want to pursue. So I think the tension is when when you try and hold innovation separate. And by the way, many innovation teams are set up this way because if you and I had been talking 15 or 20 years ago, that was an effective way to innovate because the world was moving a lot more slowly. So you had kind of the company doing its thing and then you had the separate lab or innovation center or accelerator and, and it worked okay. I think in today's world, you know, we we do a tremendous amount to try and link and embed innovation and the capabilities that we have into our businesses. Because if you can get rid of that tension, the collaboration is actually is extremely valuable. And it goes back to asking the right questions. I know that I'm I'm working on Cityplex, Google Pay, and my manager Sarah Fleischman continuously anything that I ever come with, she's asking me how can you think of this differently? What's the other side to it? And so I would definitely say that innovation is, you know, in the middle name of my role, even though it's not technically in the title. But I do think there's something else that's really unique to you. And and that is that you are considered an innovation leader. And so what do you think are some of the challenges that innovation leaders face in comparison to more traditional leadership roles, like chief operations officer or anything like that? If you think about innovation, right, things do take time to play out, right? It's not about speed. And so, you know, if you're working in, say, a public company like City, a lot of things get measured on a quarter by quarter basis or a year over year basis. And innovation takes longer than that in many cases. So maybe one of the most challenging things is it's awfully hard to know whether you're good at it or not. You know, are you the best chief innovation officer ever or <laughs> the worst chief innovation officer ever? So I think in innovation, it's it's really important to have both quantitative and qualitative metrics and be very straight with people about when you think something should yield benefit and how long it will take. You, you're going to be wrong sometimes. But for instance, we have a page that, that I carry around with me all the time that shows the seven or eight different big programs that we're running and how mature each one of those is. So as an example, our venture capital investing unit is very mature. We've been running that for more than 10 years. It's easy to both qualitatively and quantitatively measure its impact. Um, But something like Ready, which we just launched, which is all around racial equity in data and design, is brand new. So it's going to be harder to measure. We're still hiring the team and, and getting going. And so being really clear about the different things in your innovation portfolio and where they are in terms of maturity and and what they should yield for the employee base and for the company, I think is is probably different than if you're running kind of a big at scale business. 
Very interesting. And I really would love to dig deeper into this new uh, diversity and equity initiative that you're doing. If you're allowed to share with me how you go about starting something like that and, and what your goals are with that. Um, City last year made some really important public sort of comments and support and initiatives around racial equity, particularly here in the U.S., uh, which I'm really proud of. I'm proud to work for a company that not only says they want a different world, but walks the walk and commits to making that difference, not just a separate thing like, oh, and over here on the side, we do this, but integrating those commitments toward racial equity within our businesses. Many of your listeners will know that there's a lot of talk about you know, bias and algorithms uh, and how it is that you know we need to make sure that that doesn't happen, right? But if all the people writing the algorithms come with the same experience and the same lived you know, perspective, um, it's far more likely that you're going to get bias. And similarly, there are issues in design as well. Right? And given that so much of our lives is technologically mediated at this point, uh, we want to make sure, you know, initially for city and, and over time, potentially even more broadly, that we were taking a proactive stance in thinking about racial equity when it comes to these technical tools that form so much of, of everyone's experience at this point. Something that I find really exciting about City and why I think this initiative could really take off internally too is because City is all about internal growth and movement um, and really building that talent from the inside. I know that when you started out at City, you started out in marketing and then you moved into ventures and, and strategic growth and then took on the CIO role. So what enabled you to navigate that successfully and what sorts of kind of maybe more tough conversations did you have along the way? Well, let me give you sort of my, my analogy for how I think about people's careers. In the olden days, as my son would say, <laughs> a lot of people approach their career as a ladder, right? And there's, there've been books written about like moving up the ladder and like, what if this rung gets broken? I mean, there's a whole sort of thing about, you know, you are going to, as a young person, you were going to pick what you wanted to do. And then you were just going to sort of climb your way up to as far as you could get. And that was sort of the image for people's careers. I've had the privilege and the luck that that has not been my career. I've been, I've done many different things. I was a high school teacher. I've been, I went back to graduate school. I've been a consultant. I've been in venture capital. I've ran insights and data for Yahoo. I've been, had a couple different jobs at City. And I've always thought about your career as more like a jungle gym at the playground, right? Where there are ways that you can climb up and there are ways that you can climb sideways and there are things that you can go down and around. And to me, the, the great thing about that is that in today's world, there are very few careers that are gonna look like a ladder. It's far more likely that people are going to move around. And I think for anyone interested in innovation, this is actually fantastic because what makes you good at innovation is having lots of different kinds of experiences. Like you were talking earlier about sort of the battlefield plan and what <laughs> I don't have that experience. So I, you know, I can't bring that to the table, but I have different experiences and, and that kind of heterogeneity of what's in your head based upon what you've done over your career is part of what makes someone really effective at innovating. 
And, and furthermore, is, is the way the job market is going to be organized for every, anyone coming into the job market now and, you know, looking ahead at the 50 years of their career. So I think you know, the more that one can nurture going into different roles, it doesn't all have to be straight up. By the way, that means that you get to the top later, but who cares? Right. You're still there. <laughs> it's not a race. Um, and and, you know, if you fall off of a ladder, it's a really long way down and it hurts. And if you fall in a jungle gym, there's usually like a rope right underneath you um, and to you jump back up climb some some different way. So, so I think you know, the more people can nurture that and it can be hard, right, because it, it often means that when you go into a new area, you're starting, you know, what feels like a step back. So you just have to remember yeah, maybe it's sort of on paper a step back, but A, who cares? And B, you're going to be able to come up the learning curve of whatever that new thing is that you're doing that much faster because you bring experience and your perspective that somebody else doesn't have from what you were doing before. So I think people need to give themselves sort of that, that flexibility um, and, and also be brave. You know, it's not easy to go into something that you don't know about, uh, but if, if you want to have the diverse set of experiences to bring to the table, you have to be willing to put yourself in kind of unknown and uncomfortable situations. Well, in my typical fashion, I have to ask even more questions about this because I think that ultimately there's still a precedent that's been set, right? So I can take a look at somebody like you and say, well, Vanessa went the jungle gym. So, okay, I can go the, the jungle gym way too, and it won't be so crazy. As you were climbing your jungle gym of a career, was there somebody that you looked to that paved the way for you? And if there wasn't, how did you know that, you know, you can take that next step and, and not fall flat on your face? Yeah. So I think, you know, I would give credit to both of my parents and you know, my mother had tons of different careers over her lifetime. She was an art teacher, an artist. She was in real estate for a while. She was a paralegal. Um, I'm probably missing a few. Uh, <laughs> I, I never assumed that you had to do the same thing or you were supposed to only like one thing. And my father as well was an attorney and then decided he wanted to become a judge. And I remember as a child having family conversations about, well, gee, if he did that, that was going to be very different economics for our family. We lived in a small town and, and being a county judge is very poorly paid thing to do, but he was interested in it. And so we, we talked about it and said, of course, like if, the, you know, if you're interested in it, go do that, who, who cares? So we won't go on this vacation and we won't, you know, we'll do something else for the summer. But so I feel like I was raised to, to do what I was passionate about and, to realize that, you know, there are lots of ways to get from A to Z. You know, when you think about why do you stay in a job, right? You stay in a job because it challenges you, you're passionate about it, you respect the people you work with. Of course, this is on top of like, we all have to earn a living. So presuming that sure. you are doing that, those three things are really important. Um, I think most people, if those things kind of start to erode over time, stay in roles for too long. And I go back to our relationship analogy from earlier, which is very rarely when your friend calls you, does she say, you know, I'm in this relationship. It's kind of mediocre, but I'm going to stay for another six months to a year. I, I'm sure it's not going to get better, but 
you know, I, I know it and I'm comfortable here. And so like, I don't really need to be all that happy. I'm just going to stay. <laughs> 99 times out of 100, your friend calls you after the initial sort of 24 to 48 hours and says, oh, my gosh, why didn't you tell me? I feel so much better. I should have left that person six months ago when I knew things were going Work is a relationship. Right. And very rarely do people leave things too early. I think mm-hmm. most often people stay for a long time and then you get in this sort of weird inertia loop. So I think it's important, whether you're interested in innovation or anything else, to, to treat work like one of the more important relationships in your life and to talk to your friends, not just your mentors, about whether it's satisfying to you. Are you learning something? Do you want to do something different? And then don't be afraid to change. Just have to jump off the diving board and swim. Completely aligned with that. And I, you know, I remember when I was applying to, to Parsons School of Design, I was so nervous to tell my mom because I had previously said I would do political science, which to me sounded like a really good, stable career. And I called her and I said, I think I'm going to go to design school. And she was like, Thank God, Zoya. Like, we were so confused as to why you were going to study political science. But I've always been brought up with this notion of do whatever you want to do, but be passionate and be the best at it. So I did want to ask you about the most exciting development within City in the last I would argue forever. And that's uh, Jane Frazier becoming CEO, the first woman to lead a Wall Street bank. I'm sure you and I are, can talk about it for days, but what does that mean to you in terms of innovation at City, but also on a personal level as someone who has been a woman leader at this bank for the last 10 plus years? So first of all, I'm thrilled for City and I'm thrilled for Jane, uh, not principally because she's a woman, but because she's great. Uh, she's extremely aspirational. She is empathetic. She's incredibly smart. She moves quickly. I think the biggest thing it means for innovation, and I've told my team this since even before she was appointed, and certainly since then, um, you know, she moves fast. So it takes a lot to just keep pace with Jane, much less try and stay out in front of trends. Or I think that's great. I think you know we work in one of just a couple of industries that there's more change ahead than in the rear view mirror, right? So think healthcare, education, financial services, and then contrast those with retail, media, entertainment, telecom, right? There are industries that have been massively, massively uprooted. And then there are some that have been changed around the edges, but, but you know, not in any way the same way that media, for instance, And so I think she is both a great leader and the absolute perfect leader for this moment, because I think the next couple of decades are going to be when some of these industries that have not gone through like gut-wrenching transformational change, that that is likely to happen. And, And I think she's got every ingredient I can think of to lead through that. So I, I couldn't be more excited. Yeah. And to, to the point of moving fast, I remember the, the first day she joined, she gave this talk about being excited about excellence. I think she had the word excellence in the background, and I, I really appreciated that. And then we received an email with these leadership principles that she wants us to really follow and uphold. And it got me excited because it actually did feel like there is a real plan for us to achieve excellence. And so I'm so interested in this idea of you know the role of the plan and the flexibility within the plan as a tool for innovation. 
you know, one of the interesting things, just sticking on Jane for a moment, is if you look at the response to the pandemic, right? She always said, right, we are going to be driven by data, not dates. When every company was putting out, you know, people are going to work from home until such and such a date, or they're going to do this at this time. And Jane was saying, like, I mean, I'm going to pay attention to the data, which right. to your point, so it means she has a plan. And when the milestones happen in that plan are going to be governed by empirically what's happening in the world. And I think that applies to so many things, not just the pandemic response, but how do you think about the business that you run or how do you think about the aspirations or goals that you've set? Because so many people either have a plan and then just start ticking through their plan or they're just kind of like going with the flow and then you never know exactly where they end mm-hmm. up. But even if you think about client service, right, totally separate from the pandemic plan, you have to have a plan and then you have to listen to input and data and what people are really saying to you in order to be able to modify that plan as needed. And I think that that sort of characteristic you know, holds true in so many situations. And that's where empathetic leadership is not just a cute thing that we put in our emails or marketing, right? It's it's truly about that flexibility, that resilience to actually hear the response of the end customer, that, that true customer obsession. So before I let you go, Vanessa, I'd love to ask you our favorite innovation question on the podcast, which is, where do you see yourself and your industry one month from now, one year from now, and 10 years from now? All right. So let's take industry first. So I think financial services one month from now, I'm, I'm not a trader. So <laughs> I, I would say like probably not wildly different, but there are a lot of accelerating irreversible trends impacting our industry. And I think a year from now, we talked before about how some industries have really been kind of wildly transformed over the past decade or two. I think a year from now, people are going to start to feel like we're in the midst of this. And 10 years from now, I think that it's quite likely that financial services will look and feel quite different from where we are today. Um, Myself in a month, I think I'll still be working from my home desk chair that I've learned to love over the past 14 months. A year from now, I think we will be back to, you know, some, but not as much business travel and um, certainly much more kind of in-person collaboration with colleagues and with clients. Um, 10 years, I never look ahead 10 years. I am a firm believer in what in Silicon Valley, where I'm based, you know, if you ask most entrepreneurs, they'll tell you their two-year plan. And the reason I think people do this is that being an entrepreneur or being in innovation is hard, as we've talked about for this, <laughs> this whole podcast. But 10 years from now, you think, oh my gosh, I'm not sure I can deal with like this much hard for 10 more years. But two years feels far enough away that that I have time to accomplish more of my aspirations, but not so long that I think I just can't make it that long. Um, so, uh, so I will stick with my answer on the one month and one year, and I will come back to you in eight years and let you know where I think we should have been in 10. 
Sounds like a plan. And I think it's it's very on brand with the jungle gym uh, metaphor that you shared today. Vanessa, it's been a real pleasure having you on the Win-Win podcast. I'm so proud to be a part of the organization in which you're a leader. And I look forward to see everything that you and the company accomplish. Likewise, such a pleasure. Thanks, Aya. Thanks for listening to Win-Win, brought to you by Win, Women in Innovation, and myself, Zoya Kozakov. If you enjoy this podcast, subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and visit womenininnovation.co to learn more about our organization, programming, and other opportunities. And remember, when women innovate, we all win.